Uh, please turn with me to Revelation chapter 8. Revelation chapter 8 is where we're going to pick up our study this morning. First, I want to give you an illustration, though, kind of get us into our text. May 18, 1980, Mount St. Helens in Washington State erupted, but it wasn't really a complete surprise. Mount St. Helens had been giving signals literally for months, and they weren't small signals. There were earthquakes, and there was fire and smoke coming out of the top of the mountain, and actually the, the, the shape of Mount St. Helens had begun to shift, and so it wasn't a complete surprise, uh, and consequently the, the local authorities were moving in and they were trying to evacuate everyone, but there was one man in particular who absolutely refused to leave. Uh, and if you were around in that time, you, you, you probably remember this story. He was notorious. His name was Harry Truman, no relationship to the president. But uh, during Prohibition, he had been a bootlegger. He was a poacher. He had uh, poached on Indian, Native American land, Indian land. He was, um, uh, he'd been married three times. Uh, apparently, his second marriage had ended, at least in part, because his method for conflict resolution was he would take his wife, who couldn't swim, and throw her into the lake. Right? So, I mean, he was just, he was a, he was a crank. And, and there were articles about him in the paper. He said, look, that mountain's a mile away. It can't hurt me. It can't touch me. You couldn't drag me out of here with a mule. And then Mount St. Helens uh, erupted, and he died. But buried alive. Because he wouldn't heed the warnings, and he wouldn't accept the offer to be rescued. Now, we're going to see a similar stubbornness and unwillingness to heed the warnings of impending doom but on a global scale, in Revelation 8 through 9, there are warning signs, and God telegraphs what he's going to do, and he gives people opportunity to repent, and yet what you're going to see in these chapters is people dig in their heels, and they refuse to turn to God for salvation. Now, to put us back in context where we are in our study, we are currently in the church age. How long will the church age last? We don't know. We don't know. We believe that what the next event is that will occur in our understanding of end times is the rapture of the church. The church will be caught up to be with the Lord. And then the tribulation period will begin. We think it will begin shortly after that, but it will begin marked by a covenant that the Antichrist or the false Messiah, the substitute Messiah, makes with Israel. And that will start the clock on Daniel's 70th week or Daniel's 70th period of seven years. And during those seven years, there will be incredible suffering on the earth as God begins to pour out his judgment upon sin. And in the midst of that judgment, invites people to turn and to repent. Now, I've got to acknowledge that um, this is not uh, a warm and fuzzy topic this morning. Uh, in fact, last week, Benjamin Pinkerton, who he subbed in for me and he did Revelation 7, he said, hey, Brian, I really want to just say thanks for not making me preach Revelation 8 through 9, right? <laughs> thanks for taking that one yourself. It's, this is a challenging topic. And we know that God is merciful, and he's kind, and he's gracious, and compassionate. He's, he's also holy, and he's just. And he can't allow and tolerate sin. And we have to worship God as he is. But what I want you to notice as we're working through these two chapters is that God's judgments are not uh, random. God is not just flying off the handle, suddenly frustrated. He's not impetuous, but his judgments are intentional, and they are purposeful, and they accomplish, we're going to see this morning, uh, three really important purposes. So what we're going to look at this morning is three purposes that are accomplished in the judgments of God. 
So, if you're not there already, please turn to Revelation chapter 8, and let's begin reading in verse 1. When the Lamb broke the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. Another angel came and stood at the altar holding a golden censer. And much incense was given to him so that he might add it to the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar, which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints went up before God out of the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with the fire of the altar and threw it to the earth. And there followed peals of thunder and sounds and flashes of lightning and an earthquake And the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound them. So the first purpose that God accomplishes with his judgment is that he vindicates his people. Now, you remember uh, throughout Scripture, trumpets signal uh, momentous events, a wide variety of momentous events. But in particular, in this context of what we're studying in end times events, the trumpets signaled the coming of the day of the Lord. Let me illustrate Joel chapter 2. It says, blow a trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. Surely it is near, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. And recall that the day of the Lord is not a single day, but it's a series of events through which God begins to to reclaim his authority over earth. He begins to uh, insert his will back again directly into human history and reclaim earth as his kingdom. It's the day of the Lord, God breaking in. And so what happens here in uh, Revelation chapter 8, remember we're coming out, out of chapters 5, 6, 7. The first judgments that were revealed were the, the seal judgments. Seals, trumpets, bowls, and they become increasingly severe. And the seventh seal opens up and reveals the seven trumpets. The seventh trumpet will open up and it will reveal the seven bowls. So the seventh seal has opened up. It reveals the seven trumpets, but we don't immediately hear a trumpet sounding. Instead, we hear silence, which is really remarkable if you think about it, because remember, heaven is is a really, really busy, active, and noisy place. There's singing, and there's shouting, and there are earthquakes, and there's thunder, and there's lightning, and it's constant. It's going on forever and ever and ever for all of eternity. And as far as I can tell, this is the only moment in all of Scripture where there's actually silence in heaven. Heaven goes silent. Why is that? Well, the text doesn't tell us directly, but I I think I know. Uh, In Jewish tradition, when the incense was offered on the altar, they believed that heaven went silent because God was paying attention to the prayers of his people. At that moment, when incense is offered on the altar, the incense, we're told, is the prayers of the saints rising up before God, and he smells the aroma, and he says to all of the thousands and thousands and thousands of angels who are around his throne and who are singing and shouting and praising, he says, silence, I'm listening to my people. I'm listening to their prayers. And what are God's people praying? Lord, please save my kitten. No, no, you know, you've been in those prayer meetings, haven't you? That, I, you know, for good reason, that's, that's not the prayer that God's listening to. Enough said on that. Or maybe the saints are praying, God, would you please let me pass that exam that I didn't study for? Ooh, sorry, ouch, maybe that was a little too soon. 
Or maybe they're saying something spiritual like, give us this day our daily bread. That's not what they're saying. What are they saying? They're saying, God, vindicate us. God, bring justice to the earth. Turn back to chapter 6 and verse 10. Revelation chapter 6, verse 10. Actually, it's starting in verse 9. It says, When the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? These are the martyrs who've lost their lives, and they're saying, Lord, how long? How long until you bring us justice? And we're told that the angel adds much incense to this because there are many prayers like this over centuries where God's people have suffered and been persecuted because they've remained loyal to the Lord. Let me give you just one illustration from Psalm 94. How long shall the wicked, O Lord, how long shall the wicked exult? They crush your people, O Lord. They slay the widow and the stranger and and they murder the orphans. They have said, the Lord does not see. So Lord, how long? How long, O Lord, these saints who are under the altar pray? How long in David's day the saints prayed? How long, Lord, until you bring justice? Will you vindicate us because we're suffering on the earth? Now, we don't talk a lot in the American church about persecution because, honestly, we're not really persecuted that heavily. Uh, We're persecuted some, but compared to what other believers throughout the world undergo, it's not much. There are a lot of protections for us in the United States. But you know, literally every single year, thousands of Christians lose their lives just because they're following Jesus. Thousands of Christians lose their property. Thousands of Christians lose their freedom just because they're following Jesus Christ. And I would expect, church, that it will, persecution will increase in the United States of America. Why? Because that's actually the history of the church, that the church is a minority that is persecuted. It's really an aberration that for so much of the the history of the United States, Christians have actually been uh, given platforms and praise. But what you see in our culture is there's increasing persecution, and I believe that is to be expected. These believers here during the tribulation period, they're calling out, they're crying out, they're saying, God, vindicate our blood, bring justice upon us. Because we've not only remained loyal to you, but we've lost our lives as a result. I want you to listen to Jesus' words from Luke chapter 18. Verse 7. Jesus said, Now will not God bring about justice for his elect, who cry to him day and night, and will he delay long over them? I tell you that he will bring about justice for them Quickly, God will bring justice. We would not want to worship a God who doesn't bring justice. We wouldn't want to live in a future kingdom in which God allowed injustice and immorality and sin to go unpunished. We worship a holy God, and we we need our God to be holy, perfectly holy. And so he will bring justice to the earth. Now, what do we mean when we talk about justice? Justice means fulfilling the obligations correctly of a relationship. 
Justice means treating people rightly. It's related to righteousness in relationships. So justice is always a relational or a social construct. It means fulfilling the duties or obligations of a particular relationship. God always acts justly, meaning God always fulfills the duties and obligations of a particular relationship correctly. God acts justly. God acts rightly, and God expects people who are made in his image to reflect his image and to treat one another correctly, to treat one another justly or rightly. What is a justice system? A justice system is enforcing justice or right relationships. And so God's judgment is God enforcing justice, bringing about justice. That is God's judgment. And if he doesn't do that, He's not behaving as God. So what's happening in heaven is there's praise and there's worship and there's, there's seals being broken and they're shouting and they're singing and there's thunder and lightning and then all of a sudden God says, shh, I'm listening to my people and they're asking for justice. So I'm going to bring justice. I'm going to bring justice justice. Chapter 8, verse 6. And the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound them. The first sounded, and there came hail and fire mixed with blood, and they were thrown to the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all of the green grass was burned up. The second angel sounded, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood, and a third of the creatures which were in the sea and had life died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel sounded, and a great star fell, fell from heaven, burning like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on, a, on the springs of water. The name of the star is called Wormwood, and a third of the waters became Wormwood, and many men died because of the waters." because they were made bitter. The fourth angel sounded, and a third of the sun, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars were struck, so that a third of them would be darkened, and the day would not shine for a third of it, and the night in the same way. God's judgments are purposeful. They're intentional. They're not random. They're not impulsive. The first purpose of God's judgments is that they vindicate his people. Second, God's judgments display his power. So as the trumpets begin to sound, the first four trumpet judgments, as the angels sound them, they pour out judgment on the earth itself. So it's not directly on people, but on the earth. And you'll notice there's parallels in these judgments and the plagues that came upon Egypt. Hail and fire, the first trumpet, is reminiscent of the seventh plague. The second and the third trumpets are reminiscent of the first plague, that is, the, the waters became, become turbulent and poisonous, filled with blood. And so first upon the sea and then upon the fresh waters. And then the fourth angel that sounds is reminiscent of the ninth plague. There's darkness on the earth, but also it's an allusion again to the day of the Lord. Let me illustrate from Ezekiel 32. It says, I will cover the heavens and darken their stars. I will cover the sun with a cloud and the moon will not give its light. All the shining lights in the heavens I will darken over you and will set darkness on your land. There will be an, an oppressive darkness that comes upon the earth. To bring fear into people's lives so that they understand that God holds all power. Verse 13. 
Then I looked and I heard an angel flying in mid-heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth because of the remaining blasts of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. So the last three trumpets are also labeled three woes. Why? Because they become more severe. The judgments will move from the land directly to the people. So the fifth trumpet is the first woe. The sixth trumpet is the second woe. The third trumpet will be the third woe, which will open up the bowl judgments. But what I want you to notice here in verse 13 is that an angel appears. He's flying in midheaven. Angels in the Bible are signs of impending judgment. When the, angel, when the eagle, excuse me, when the eagle shows up in the heavens, he's a sign of impending judgment. But notice the eagle announces the judgment. That is, God is, he's, he's, he's forecasting, he's telegraphing, he's warning people. This is what's about to come. Pay attention so that you can turn, so that you can repent. I'm displaying my power so that you will turn and believe in me and trust me for salvation and deliverance. Verse 1, chapter 9. Then the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star from heaven which had fallen to the earth, and the key of the bottomless pit was given to him. He opened the bottomless pit, and smoke went up out of the pit, like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened by the smoke of the pit. Then out of the smoke came locusts upon the earth, and power was given them as the scorpions of the earth have power. They were told not to hurt the grass of the earth, nor any green thing, nor any tree, but only the men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. And they were not permitted to kill anyone, but to torment for five months. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings a man. And in those days men will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, and death flees from them. The appearance of the locusts was like horses prepared for battle, and on their heads appeared to be crowns like gold, and their faces were like the faces of men. They had hair like the hair of women, and their teeth were like the teeth of lions. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings was like the sound of chariots of many horses rushing to battle. They have tails like scorpions and stings, and in their tails is their power to hurt men for five months. They have as their king over them the angel of the abyss. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he has the name Apollyon, which means destruction. The first woe is past. Behold, two woes are still coming after these things. So the fifth angel sounds, and a star comes from heaven. Stars were, in prophetic literature, uh, an image of angels. So this could be a fallen angel. This could be uh, a righteous angel. I think it's an angel sent from God because in chapter 20, we have exactly a similar scene happening where an angel is sent from God with keys to the abyss. The abyss is, in a sense, a, a prison for demonic spirits who are not allowed to, to move and act in the earth. So an angel from heaven comes and he has a key to the abyss and he unlocks the abyss and demonic creatures are released. And these demonic creatures, John struggles to describe them. He says that they're like locusts that can sting you like a scorpion. And what you see here is that God is demonstrating his power. Over natural creation, he sends judgments upon the earth, upon the water, upon the land. He also has control over the immaterial or the spiritual world. Even the demon, demonic forces do his bidding, and he allows them to come out, and they begin to torment people for five months. They're not literal locusts. These are demonic creatures from 
the abyss. Now, I want you to hold your place in Revelation and turn with me to the book of Joel, chapter 1. Joel, chapter 1, because there's a clear borrowing of language that John does from the book of Joel. And I know um, you don't spend a lot of time, quiet times in Joel, but Joel's a really important book for uh, eschatology and understanding the day of the Lord. So uh, Joel's a minor prophet. The, it's not minor because it's less important. It's minor. It's small, right? So you got the major prophets, the big ones, Ezekiel, Isaiah, Jeremiah, after Ezekiel, Daniel, and then immediately minor prophets. So Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, right? I said all of that just to give you a minute to find Joel. <laughs> all right, pull those pages apart. Joel chapter 1, verse 4. What the gnawing locust has left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust has left, the creeping locust has eaten. What the creeping locust has left, the stripping locust has eaten. What Joel is describing is there was a series of locusts, pestilence just swept through Judah, the southern kingdom, four of them, one after another, and it destroyed all of the crops, and it led to famine. That's what Joel's describing. It literally happened. But then Joel says, you know, what happened there with the, the, the locusts that came, something much worse is going to happen if you don't repent and turn to the Lord. In fact, a foreign army is going to come in, and they're going to come in like locusts. And they're going to swarm over the land, and they're not just going to eat the crops. They're going to kill our people. Verse 6, For a nation has invaded my land, mighty and without number. Its teeth are the teeth of a lion, and it has the fangs of a lioness. It has made my wine a, my vine a waste, it is, and my fig tree splinters. It has stripped, stripped them bare and cast them away. Their branches have become white. That is, this foreign army that's, that is going to come, it's going to be far worse than the insects that invaded our lands. Chapter 2, verse 11, second half of verse 11. It says, The day of the Lord is indeed great and very awesome, and who can endure it? Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart and with fasting and weeping and mourning, and rend your heart and not your garments. Now return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and relenting from evil. See what Joel is saying is this, God, God allowed the locusts to come in to remind you that he has all power and he has all authority and he's control, in control over the natural world and he's in control over the nations and he's a holy and he's a just God and he's warning you now, turn from your sin and turn back to him. And he says here, here in the text, he says, yet even now, God does not long to bring judgment on you, yet even now, turn to him and be saved by him, and be rescued by him. There's only protection in him. Yet even now, if the judgment has not yet come, there's opportunity to repent, and to turn, and to be saved. Turn back with me to Revelation chapter 9, verse 13. The sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, altar, which is before God, one saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates, and the four angels who had been prepared for the hour and the day and the month and the year were released so that they would kill a third of mankind. And the number of the armies of the horsemen was 200 million. I heard the number of them. And this is how I saw the vision of the horses and those who sat on them. The riders had breastplates the color of fire and of hyacinth and of brimstone. 
And the heads of the horses were like the heads of lions, and out of their mouths proceed fire and smoke and brimstone. A third of mankind was killed by these three plagues, by the fire and the smoke and the brimstone, which proceeded out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents and have heads, and with them they do harm. The river Euphrates was pictured as the boundary beyond which were hostile armies, okay, hostile to God's people. So Euphrates was a literal river, but it became a metaphor for the people. Beyond this, there are hostile armies, and apparently God has angels positioned holding back hostile forces. War could break out at any moment, as we know, but this is a war like no other. When these angels are released and they are allowed to let the armies go, apparently they're 200 million or more. It's just an enormous number, a number that's just so large that John can't even contemplate it. And as they come forth, it's like the 10th plague on Egypt and hundreds of thousands of millions, even billions of people are killed as this global conflict escalates, as these angels are released. Now notice Verse 15, let's read that again. It says, The four angels who had been prepared for the hour and the day and the month and the year. God's judgments are not accidental. God doesn't, God doesn't parent like I parent, where I just all of a sudden just get so frustrated and I'm going to, okay, this is the discipline. Ah, I fly off the handle. No, there's... There's an hour, there's a day, there's a month, there's a year. God is intentional. God is purposeful. God is not capricious in his judgment. His judgments are purposeful. They're planned. Why? To reveal his power so people have an opportunity to see him as he is. Now, as we went through those judgments, I pointed out, you have, you have similarities to the plagues upon Egypt which were also very purposeful and intentional by God. Remember when we were, we were, we were studying the, the, the sealed judgments, we talked about how God just seems to be dragging this out over a period of time. Why doesn't he just do it in a moment? Because he's giving people opportunity to see his power so that they can repent. I want to take you back to the book of Exodus chapter 9. This is the Lord speaking to Pharaoh, and he said, I will send all my plagues on you and on your servants and on your people so that, okay, so that, you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. I have allowed you to remain in order to show you my power and in order to proclaim my, my name throughout all of the earth, because people will hear of this and they will understand there is no God but me. There is no one like me. And so God delays, and then as he reveals his judgments, he does them sequentially, orderly, showing his power to prove to people resistance is futile. Would you just clue in? You can't fight against the creator of the universe. His ways are always right. I remember when my kids were little, sometimes they would just dig in their heels, right? Sometimes they dig in their heels over just the smallest stuff. Sometimes it was big stuff, but they're just digging in. And I would tell them, I'd say, please, please, please don't make this into a fight because you can't win. And I won't let you win. I beg, please stop digging in. Do you not realize I'm a lot bigger? 
I'm a lot stronger. I have a job. I own a car. I have keys to the house. I've got money. I've got a credit. You have nothing, right? You have no resources. You've got no power at all. Please wake up. Just give in. You can't win. So what God is doing with these increasingly severe judgments is showing people his power so that they will repent and turn to him. And what do they do? They dig in their heels. They dig in their heels. And this is the third purpose of God's judgment, to expose what's really going on in human hearts. Chapter 9, verse 20. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, so as to not worship demons and the idols of gold and of silver and brass and stone and wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders, nor their sorceries, nor their immorality, nor their thefts. They did not repent. Now, uh, I, I find the, the whole concept of karma really interesting. Uh, that said, please don't tweet, Brian believes in karma. I don't believe in karma. I just think it's interesting um, because it makes life really simple in a sense, right? Karma is really simple. If you do really good deeds, then you, when you die, you will be reincarnated or you'll come back again, but in a better form. And you'll keep increasing in these forms until you reach nirvana or this, you know, perfection. You're brought into the oneness of something that I don't fully understand, right? But it's all based upon your works and you just progress through. You, you die and then you're born again. You're reincarnated. And if you're bad, you know, your good is weighed against your bad. And if you're bad, then you're going to go backwards and you're going to get reincarnated into something worse, a different form, a worse form, in which it really makes all of life really simple, right? So if you see uh, a homeless person, you can say to yourself, clearly they did bad things. They're just, they're just receiving their just punishment for a previous life, and I don't have any obligation to help them. In fact, I shouldn't help them because right now they're suffering, and their suffering is making payment for past sins so that they can move forward. It's all really, really clear. And then if I see a person who's rich and powerful, I should respect that person because clearly they've made good decisions and lived well, and that's why they've moved forward in life, right? Because life's just really simple. It just works that way, right? Except it doesn't. And there's always more to the story. Maybe that person is homeless because they're suffering from mental illness. Maybe they were abused, or maybe it's a, a veteran returning from war and they're suffering from PTSD, right? You don't know the rest of the story, do you? Or maybe that rich person got all of their wealth by stealing from other people, and they're actually a really, really evil person, and you don't know, right? You don't know the rest of the story. But here's the point. God does. Right? God knows all of the background, he knows all of the things that are hidden by people. God knows the entire story. God knows human hearts. And I thought this proverb was particularly relevant for what we're studying here in the book of Revelation. It says, Sheol and Abaddon lie open before the Lord. How much more the hearts of men? <laughs> Do you see the connection? Abaddon is, is that the abyss, the dwelling place of demonic forces. And the proverb says, God sees all the way to the pit. He sees what's happening on earth. He dwells in heaven. He knows what's happening there. There is nothing that escapes God's notice. How much more does he know exactly what's going on inside the human heart? The things that we hide from others, also even the things that we hide from ourselves. As Jeremiah said, the heart is desperately wicked and deceitful above all else. Can you even know 
sometimes what's going on in your own heart, God does. God knows the entire story. And what is his evaluation? His evaluation is the problem for these people is not ignorance. God has revealed himself. The problem is a hard, stubborn, rebellious heart. They want anything but God. Turn back to Revelation chapter 6, verse 15. It says, Then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? No one can say, I didn't know. Right? They know. They know where this is coming from, and yet they harden their hearts against the Lord. Now, so many times as a pastor, I've been asked, well, Brian, what about those really, really good people, and God never reveals himself to that, that good person? What about that person? Well, the Bible tells us that person doesn't actually ever exist. Romans chapter 1, God is revealing himself in creation. He is revealing his power. Something exists, not nothing. And what does exist is, is amazing, and it's remarkable, and it's vast. It's a universe. He's revealing his tele- intelligence. He's revealing his, his wisdom. He's revealing his goodness as he provides for his creation. He's revealing himself in his creation. Romans 1 tells us he's also revealing himself in people's conscience. People do know right from wrong and still choose wrong. Romans 8 and 9 adds, God's revealed himself and will reveal himself in judgment. So no one can stand before him and say, you didn't show yourself to me. God is trying to make himself known. And when people respond to the revelation that God gives to them, he gives them more. God wants people to be in relationship with him. Remember Ezekiel 33 that we read two weeks ago. God says, I take no delight in the destruction of the wicked. Rather that you would turn, repent, live, find life in me. I'm the only shelter that you can, you can find to escape judgment that falls on sin. Be rescued by me. God is trying to reveal himself to people. And what these judgments will reveal in the end times is that people harden their hearts. We also saw that there will be some who turn and soften, and they believe. So, that's a lot. That's a heavy passage. What what are some practical ways we can think about this and apply this? Um, as I was thinking about it this week, you know, I thought it's really natural for us to long for justice. Because we're made in God's image, when we see someone who's, who's, who's cheated or lied to, stolen from, somebody who, who doesn't have any, any recourse, they don't have any power, and they're, they're struggling, and they're, they're not receiving justice. There's something in us that rises up, and we want to step in, we want to defend. When we ourselves, even more so... <laughs> have an injustice against us, then we really want to fight, right? We want justice, because of course we want justice for ourselves, right? And we want the other person to suffer. But we have to acknowledge there are times when we have not behaved justly also in relationships. So we want justice, but we want also mercy for ourselves, because there are times, remember, justice means uh, behaving appropriately to the obligations of a relationship, And when we don't, that's called sin, right? Sin is almost always a relational moment. There are sins that we do in private, but really they have relational effect. And when we don't behave justly, that is, we don't fulfill the obligations of those relationships. So we've been treated unjustly for sure, but we have to acknowledge we also have not always in all of our lives treated others 
according to the obligations of the relationship, the result of that is every single one of us is under condemnation of judgment for our injustices. What the gospel says is that because God saw all of these injustices on the earth, he sent his son to take on human flesh so that he could pour out all of his just judgment against sin onto Jesus. That's why Jesus died. It's a theological word where it's called propitiation. It means the satisfaction of God's wrath against sin. In Jesus Christ, God satisfied all of his wrath against sin. He poured out all of his wrath against all sin, every sin that had ever been committed by every man, woman, and child for all of human history. He poured it out upon Jesus. And if you believe in Jesus, then you are protected by Jesus' sacrifice, his death and his burial and resurrection. Because God said, by raising him from the dead, that sacrifice of that one man, my son, that's enough to cover all of my longing for justice. So if you're in Jesus, you're safe. If you are not in Jesus, you are not safe. So the gospel message is this. Believe in Jesus Christ so that your debt of sin can be paid for by him and you can have no fear of judgment ever. So I want to encourage you, if you've never made that really simple decision that this morning, maybe this is the moment where, where God is, he's telegraphing it. He's giving forewarning. He's, he's allowing us to read the book of Revelation and say, okay, that's what's coming and this is who God is. I don't want any part of that, and you don't have to. Instead, all that you have to do is believe in Jesus and take shelter under him. Remember those martyrs who are crying out to the Lord in Revelation 6. It says they are under the altar. That is, they are under the blood of Christ. They are protected by the blood of Christ. And maybe that's the decision you need to make this morning. So as we close here in a moment, we're going to celebrate uh, communion. But what I'd like for us to do is I'd like for us to let's just have a moment of silence and lift up our prayers like incense before the Lord, knowing that God is leaning in and he's listening. And there are two things in particular that I want to encourage you to, to lift up before the Lord as your offering. Uh, first, let's, let's worship God for his holiness, his justice, and his power. There is no one like him, just, just God. And he's revealed himself to us. So let's lift up those prayers, prayers of, of worship to him. And then second, let's thank God for the shelter that we have in Jesus.